This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation and listeners like you. Calliopeia supports projects interweaving spirituality, culture, and ecology. We are grateful for their support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners. To learn more about the Calliopeia Foundation, visit calliopeia.org. To make a donation to For the Wild, visit forthewild.world donate or support us through Patreon. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'll be speaking to writer and conservation activist Tom Butler. All of these isms deserve scrutiny, but the ultimate one that we have to drill down to, again, is this question of of anthropocentrism, of human-centeredness, of human supremacy. And all the systems, political, economic, cultural, that privilege one species, over all the other, perhaps 10 million others on the earth. Tom Butler is author, volume editor, or co-editor of more than a dozen books, including Wildlands Philanthropy, Plundering Appalachia, and Overdevelopment, Overpopulation, Overshoot, and Energy, Overdevelopment, and The Delusion of Endless Growth. Formerly the Vice President for Conservation Advocacy at Tompkins Conservation, He now serves as a board member of that NGO and has just assumed the new role of senior fellow at Northeast Wilderness Trust, a regional land trust. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today in conversation. This is something I've been looking forward to for a long time, so welcome. I'm looking forward to it very much, and I very much appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Mm. Well, in preparing for this interview, it reminded me of For the Wild's Origins. And following my participation in Occupy, I went from Zuccotti Park to this just breathtaking region of Patagonia. And, you know, some people know my story. I'd never camped before a day in my life. And here I was in this place that was so wild and rugged. And it was this experience that really birthed For the Wild and a tremendous love for all that the wild encompasses. So this is, yeah, a very important conversation for me. And before we discuss conservation and rewilding, I wonder if you could speak to what wildland philanthropy has both preserved and brought back in the Chaco Buco Valley through Tompkins Conservation, gradual acquisition of land, and then eventually the largest public slash private national park donation. Well, let me try to paint a little bit of a word picture of the Chacabuco Valley for listeners who've never been to that wild and windswept region at the bottom of the Americas. So if you were um, had a bird's eye view and flying through across the east-west oriented Chacabuco Valley, you'd be looking down on this little river, braided channel gravel bars um, of the Chacabuco River. It would look not dissimilar to similar sized rivers that you would see in Alaska or, or Canada. And the, along the edges of the river, you'd see little patches of riparian forest. But the dominant uh, ecosystem type there is this Patagonia steppe grassland full of bunch grasses and shrubby prickly plants. And um, it would seem remarkably similar to parts of Montana or Idaho or Wyoming. Um, in fact, the first time I got a chance to fly down there, I flew into the airport at Balmaceda and then had a six-hour drive along a, the gravel southern highway, the Carretera Austral, 
to get to the Chacabuco Valley. But when I got to the airport, I realized it smells like um, Wyoming. Like it was like the same smell as Casper, Wyoming, you know, and the, because it's that same kind of Western bunch grass uh, type habitat. Uh, it doesn't have sagebrush. It's a different kind of suite of shrubby plants, but it really is remarkably similar to parts of the American West. But um, if, a few dissimilarities, those big herds of grazing animals that you'd see uh, throughout the Chacabuco Valley are not elk. Um, they're not bison. It's wanacos, the wild camel of, of South America. And the big birds you'd see soaring overhead are not uh, golden eagles, but uh, Andean condors soaring, soaring over the mountains. So it, it, is, it is a absolutely glorious and wild and wondrous country that has been the epicenter of a colonization story. It's not, again, dissimilar to what happened in the, in the North American West, but just came later to the Americas. So does that give you kind of an, a, a bit of a, uh, an idea of what this landscape is now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what it was in 2004 when uh, one of the philanthropies associated with Douglas and Christine Tompkins acquired the bulk of the Chacabuco Valley. Uh, it was one of the largest, if not the largest, private ranch or estancia in that region. It was called the Estancia Valle Chacabuco. Uh, it was close to 200,000 acres. And there were 50,000 sheep and there were hundreds of miles of fencing. And there were very, very few Wanakos, and every mountain lion that could be hunted, uh, shot, poisoned, trapped, persecuted, uh, would be so. And the, the land had been, in effect, sort of bound up, colonized for agricultural production uh, since the imposition of the frontier culture that got to that part of Chile really only, only about 100 years ago. So it was a very recent era of colonization, but the result of it was dramatic um, degradation of the grassland, persecution of the wildlife, um, soil loss through erosion, and uh, the imposition you know, of this domestic agenda on an extraordinary and previously wild place. So what happened in those intervening years from 2004 to now was this remarkable story of rebirth and rewilding as, as uh, people tried to help nature heal in one particular place. Hundreds of people have been part of that story over that time period. Um, and uh, the result is this remarkable, remarkable recovery of wildness. Hundreds of miles of ranch fencing torn out, the uh, quick recovery of the grasslands, not not total. I mean, it'll be a long period of time, but um, a faster recovery of the grasslands than was expected. And uh, the recovery of wildlife populations, especially Wenakos, um, and the conservation and protection of the apex predator region of the region, the, the mountain lion or puma, instead of its persecution. It's an amazing story. I like to think of it, of that one little place is sort of like down pay, one down payment on the rewilding of the world. Mm. Thank you for sharing that with us and starting us off like that. And yeah, I've been learning more and more about large scale conservation projects. And what really stands out to me is that securing protection for vast swaths of land is no easy feat. You know, it's incredibly easy to criticize this process and recognize the shortcomings of capital C conservation and exclusionary conservation, as it has historically displaced many populations and distressed communities that have relied upon pasture and forest for their livelihood. Yet, as we find ourselves trying to protect some of the last vestiges of land, it's undeniable that large-scale conservation is a tool that we have. So I wonder if you could share, how do you see the park system in Patagonia as an example of wildlands philanthropy that coalesces the powers of private ownership and government control to rewild precarious places? And how have you worked through some of these complexities and sought to balance the necessity of large-scale conservation 
while also acknowledging the social impacts? Well, wow, there's a whole lot there to chew on. Um, <laughs> yeah. We could we could tease out, but pretty much each of those questions and spend an hour just on them. But I I, I acknowledge, of course, you're precisely right that large scale conservation is complicated. It's nuanced. It's it's com it's controversial. It's difficult at times. Um, the particular tool that we're talking about here of conservation philanthropy, wildlands philanthropy, of of private individuals or organizations acquiring private property for nature protection purposes, and in this case, repatriating it to the public as well as to the creatures that call that place home. Um, that is how I define wildlands philanthropy, and that is a, a very important but limited tool in conservation history. Um, in this place, it was applicable because this gigantic ranch that was being hammered uh, was for sale. It was in the context of a society where there is kind of rule of law, private property ownership is possible um, and also relatively durable and, and enforceable. So it was a tool that was possible to use and the, the people involved here, kind of the heroes of this story, Doug and Christine Tompkins, had the means the private capital to do that. Now, this, this idea is not a new one. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Wildlands Philanthropy, and there are all kinds of stories in that book from Grand Teton National Park to Acadia National Park to the Smokies. Um, some of these most iconic public natural areas, Muir Woods, they're outside of San Francisco. Some of the most iconic public natural areas that we revere in the US are the result of people using their wealth, their influence, and their energy, their passion to buy and save land. And in all those cases, to assure that it would remain in the public domain as opposed to keeping it as a private reserve. So in the context of, of Douglas and Christine Tompkins, for, for those people who don't know those names, they were very successful, or Chris Tompkins was the former CEO of the Patagonia Clothing Company, one of the first employees under the owners of that company. And uh, Doug Tompkins was a very successful American business person. He founded the North Face when it was just a little ski shop in San Francisco, sold that, and then um, was extremely successful with his first wife in growing the Esprit Fashion Company into a really a global powerhouse in the 1980s of, of fashion. And all the while was becoming um, more and more disgruntled with consumerism and particularly with the fashion industry that he realized, as he later described it, that he was inculcating desire. And at one point in the 1980s, you couldn't you know, walk through an American town without seeing a teenager with, with a Esprit t-shirt on. He was creating a desire for something that really was unnecessary. He was helping to create consumerism. And when he had his ecological epiphany, he, um, he decided to essentially spend the last quarter of his life, the last 25 years of his life, as he used to say, paying his rent for living on the planet. And in a bit of capitalist jujitsu, after he'd sold his half of the Esprit company, he took his, his great wealth, endowed the Foundation for Deep Ecology, and then several other related family foundations and nonprofits, and began both granting to scrappy biocentric and wilderness protection type NGOs, as well as started buying private land in the South, uh, where he had mostly uh, resettled within Chile and Argentina. Um, and Doug, over the you know succeeding decades, Doug and Chris through these philanthropies acquired roughly two million acres, and then you know incrementally began donating it to the park systems of Chile and Argentina. And the result of that donation uh, is now uh, the, the kind of the tally sheet is that they've helped create uh, through the kind of suite of Tompkins Conservation Foundations and entities have helped create 13 new national parks and in total protecting more than 14 and a half million acres. So just to make that real, that's that's like the state I'm sitting in, Vermont, plus New Hampshire, plus a couple of Delawares, all protected permanently in the, in the national park systems of Chile and Argentina now 
due to the catalyst of private funding and initiative than triggering public action through governmental decree. You'll note that I rambled on there for a moment, but I did not segue into your more difficult question about large-scale conservation and the social potential impacts of that, social effects, which can be positive and negative. Do you want to go there? I would love to go there. Yes, well, please it's, take us there. Again, it's, it's tricky. Um, in the case of the landscapes where the Tompkins Conservation Projects have been located, and there have been many of them, but the three flagship parks are Pumaline Park uh, in the Valvuvian Coastal Temperate Rainforest region of Chile, uh, the Patagonia National Park in the Chacabuco Valley that we already discussed farther to the south, and the Ibarra National Park in northern Argentina, which is centered on one of South America's largest freshwater uh, ecosystems, the Ibarra marshlands. And there are many other uh, parks that have been you know, in that 13 successes, but those three flagships are ones that most closely embody the idea of this particular toolkit. Private wealth deployed into land acquisition, uh, creation of related park infrastructure, so for public access, and then a donation to a national government, to a federal system of protected areas. In the case of Argentina, that's into the National uh, Parks Administration, and into Chile, it's into a national park system, which is much, much weaker and much less uh, funded. It's very much underfunded for, <laughs> for a system of what are extraordinary ecological jewels. Um, and, and of course, the hope is that over time, the public institutions, the, the institutional capacity to sustain and protect and conserve those ecological jewels in Chile's national park system will, will grow. downpour here in Washington has started and so I've listening to you as I'm watching the the rain pour outside thinking of these forests here on the Olympic Peninsula that have been so colonized and tortured over the past 100 150 years and to imagine what it would be like to rewild this place and so many places that have been so highly just well, I have a lot of words, but uh, destroyed. And I want to talk a bit more about rewilding. And, you know, rewilding has been adopted in different ways according to different societal understandings. And to begin, I wonder if you'd share how you define rewilding and how and where you think this has been successfully done. I define rewilding very simply. At its most basic, rewilding is helping nature heal. It's it's extremely simple concept to to um, communicate. I think if if you lead with that, the arguably the largest and most um, dramatic example of rewilding. If you think about rewilding as land that is growing more wild, or the land community regaining wildness, the Adirondack Park of upstate New York, the eastern northeastern temperate forest. If you looked at the last 150 years, if you could 
sort of watch over time and see how temperate forests have been shrinking all over the earth. Where's the one place or one significant place where that story has been reversed? It's the northeastern U.S. temperate forest as it's been expanding as that land was essentially colonized the, the, and then sort of abandoned for agricultural clearing as the as the soils played out. And then the idea of organized conservation uh, in this part of the country really um, uh, kind of accelerated in the late 1800s, with the formation of the Adirondack Park, which is the largest protected area in the lower 48, the adoption of the Forever Wild Clause in the New York State Constitution, which protects those public forest lands within the Adirondack Forest Preserve as forever wild, and the strongest protection of any land use designation in the country, even stronger than federal wilderness area protection. So there's an example of the first component of an overarching rewilding approach, which I think is three-pronged. Rewilding can occur when one, you pr protect particular places using the existing tools of protected areas designation and say and protect those places for their wildness not as uh, as places of sustainable timber production or forage production uh, for livestock talking essentially about wildlands or, or wilderness areas so protect places that's the first part and make sure that that protection at least within the current kind of socio-political context is as durable as possible and there are a whole you know a lot of tools to do that but public natural areas, including national parks, are arguably the most loved and most durable tool. And that's exactly why Doug and Chris Tompkins used that tool in the South with their projects. That's what they were shooting for, national parks. So the second part of rewilding is once you have that landscape, that stage for natural processes, it's helping natural processes um, recover, restoring wild uh, processes and native species to the extent that is possible or to the extent that is necessary from active intervention. And then the third kind of wing of this triad of a rewilding approach to conservation is ourselves. It's rewilding hearts and minds because the only way that we ultimately will move toward this nature needs half or half earth vision for the planet where we can imagine this future time when all the earth is wrapped in these beautiful blue and green ribbons of wildness, when protected areas, protected incrementally, but knit up place by place and group by group and project by project into these ribbons of wildness around the, uh, the earth on land and the oceans. The only way you get to that vision of at least half the earth protected for wild nature to flourish is if people's minds and hearts change. And that's the rewilding ourselves component, which is, of course, central to the work that you do through your podcast and other initiatives. Uh, I'd like to discuss the differences between restoration and rewilding, because restoration, which has really gained a lot of traction in the United States, has, in my mind, really been, or... <laughs> what I've seen been co-opted by extractive industry and is now doing a great deal of damage. Uh, for instance, in the Pacific Northwest, the United States, I see a lot of greenwashing of restoration. Um, and a lot of times restoration projects are given a lot of grant money to basically just reopen roads for more logging. Or, uh, you know, there's so many, I could really go on a monologue here about what I've seen, um, the damage that quote unquote restoration has done here. So I'm wondering, do you think rewilding is a better way to restore? Or have you seen these issues come up around restoration versus rewilding in your experience? Yeah. First of all, I acknowledge and I, I um, share your fears and your sort of, kind of general take on this. Because there is, um, I think it's, your point is apt. These terms and methods can be co-opted for dangerous ends. Um, the, the idea why I think rewilding is at least more powerful as an overarching meme um, now is because we're talking about 
not just sites, individual sites that have been trashed need to be restored, which is noble, you know, if the ends are, are, are good, but um, to systems. We're talking about nature, be, natural processes being able to be reasserted across vast swaths of the landscape. So with some kind of restoration projects, you have a managerial mindset. It's just, you know, the, the tools or tactics may be different, but it's still putting people and manipulation in the driver's seat, as opposed to looking at um, an ecological wound and saying, how can we best serve the inherent intrinsic healing powers of nature here? So the, the natural the, uh, metaphor here or analogy would be medicine. You know, when you, when you go to the hospital and talk to your doctor and she gives you a treatment, uh, a course of action, whether it's mild or highly interventionist, your doctor is counting on the body's intrinsic healing powers. You know, and the, the medicine or the surgery or whatever it is, if it's more aggressive intervention, is there to serve that, but not to sort of be, require ongoing manipulation. At least one hopes. hopes. One hopes that one will get better and feel better and be vibrant and whole and healthy again. And so it is with ecological systems. The goal of intervention should be to do the minimum, at least in my view, um, the minimum amount of intervention that is necessary uh, for those systems, again, to be whole and healthy and intact and flourishing and not to require ongoing intervention and certainly not to sort of be a greenwashing for destructive activities because, oh, well, we're going to trash this place, but then we'll call in the restorationists and we'll fix it right up. That way gets you the ecologically depauperate, miserable places that are the blasted off mountaintops of Appalachia that have supposedly been reclaimed. And in fact, uh, what is there is <laughs> no, it will never be, and not for a thousand years be that beautiful, intact, diverse uh, hardwood forest of Southern Appalachia again. This makes me think about shifting baselines of you know, with restoration, it's always trying to get back to something like a pre-colonial landscape, um, where I feel like rewilding is a bit different than this trying to get back to something. And then I think about, of course, climate change and conservation, like everything else, is also impacted by climate change. And I would imagine rewilding as well, especially because it requires a well, conservation requires a physical delineation of place and our understanding of place is becoming more and more uncertain. So how do you factor ecological research and climate change into conservation? And what does conservation for moving ecosystems look like? Well, again, there's a whole lot to chew on um, there. And since I'm not uh, trained as a scientist, I'm sure other people could make a, could give you a, a more astute an informed answer. But nonetheless, in my superficial way, I'll take a stab at it. And I'll do that by giving you two kind of contrasting examples of, of land conservation organizations um, trying to practice in their day-to-day -day tangible conservation work this idea of rewilding. Okay, well, so let's, let's start with um, something at the small scale and then go back to Tompkins Conservation working at a really large scale. Uh, almost two decades ago, as a volunteer, I helped co-found a regional land trust in the Northeast. It's called the Northeast Wilderness Trust. And the current uh, board president is the scientist Mark Anderson, who um, works for the Nature Conservancy and is a brilliant guy and a wonderful man, um, who is really the guru of climate resilience modeling um, related to land conservation targets. And this gets to your kind of the latter part of that question about the idea that no place is static in its assemblage of species. And with the acceleration of climate chaos, um, some places are going to fare better than other places to maintain wildness, to maintain ecological diversity, to be productive habitat for the creatures that call that place home than other places will. And then if you're, so if you're in the land conservation business, whether you're a local land trust or a regional group like Northeast Wilderness Trust or a huge 
international behemoth like the Nature Conservancy, as you decide which projects to work on, you better be incorporating as one criterion this idea of resilience. Is that landscape or seascape, um, is that area of the planet that you're likely to target your conservation efforts going to be more or less resilient in the face of climate chaos? So Northeast Wilderness Trust, even though it's a relatively small regional uh, or NGO, incorporates that, that modeling. And every time the team there is deciding on a particular, we, will, oh, we want to work on this project in the Eastern Adirondacks or this project in Maine, um, it's being run through those models as one screen to help determine whether that is uh, the best place to put organizational efforts. On the other scale, with Tompkins Conservation, uh, it's, it's really interesting um, if you look at the 30-year history of Tompkins Conservation, this extraordinary track record you know, of more than 14 million acres protected, there was initially almost no science brought to it in terms of, you know, they didn't bring, Doug Tompkins didn't bring in teams of consulting biologists to look at the land around what became Pumalin Park. No, he flew over it in his little airplane, his little Husky or his Cessna, and saw one of the great last intact wild temperate rainforests left on the planet. And he, had, and he could buy it for 25 bucks an acre. And he had hundreds, you know, millions of dollars sitting in his bank account or in his foundation, you know, endowment. And he started doing that. He started buying large swaths of intact temperate Valdivian rainforest, uh, ultimately assembled, you know, 700 plus thousand acres on a Yosemite scale and donated it in this, uh, in this parklands package, ultimately after he had died under the leadership of Chris Tompkins to become a national park other federal public lands were were incorporated, and now it's basically a million acre wild sanctuary and one of the greatest reservoirs of intact carbon on the planet. And it didn't. It was. It had nothing to do, sort of, with people going in and analyzing its ecological diversity and say, "Well, this is a good place to have a national park." It was. It was really based on conservation by opportunity. And the huge vision that Doug had for what he might do for, you know, again, sort of using the private wealth that capitalism had brought to him. And in this kind of act, again, of capitalist jujitsu, then redeploying that wealth uh, in a way that was antithetical to the capitalist mindset, which is to commodify everything, turn, flip that on its head. Ecosystems are going to be shifting. But the more intact and the more um, heterogeneity, heterogeneity that they have, you know, across elevational gradients, the more they're going to be resilient. And with Pumalin Park, you have a million acres there, protected forever, owned in common by the people, the nation of Chile, but open to everyone and, and protected for the creatures that, again, that call that place home. And it runs from the Pacific, from sea, you know, the sea, literally sea level, up to the crest of the Andes, across these elevational gradients. So it may be one, not only one of the great carbon reservoirs, it is likely to be one of the most ecologically resilient uh, places uh, of any protected area on Earth because the, of that ability for ecosystems to migrate uphill as temperatures warm.
I do want to bring into the conversation uh, this book, In Keeping the Wild Against the Domestication of Earth, the connection between big conservation names and big businesses is often alluded to. For example, the Nature Conservancy maintains strong connections to corporations like Goldman Sachs and Co. and um, Duke Energy and Hewlett-Packard. So I'm wondering, how does what you and others describe as new conservation lean towards economic development, and why is this a cause for concern? Large institutions uh, have large budgets. Large budgets uh, require large donors, um, and not just in their physical girth, but in the you know the circumference of their checkbooks. That is just the the socioeconomic system that we are operating in now. Uh, when we through the Foundation for Deep Ecology's publishing program uh, helped develop and published that anthology, um, which is published by Island Press, called Keeping the Wild. It was to react and we you know, sought the voices of some of the leading conservation thinkers in North America to react to that trend, that tendency of, of the, um, or the trend of, of some of the largest conservation organizations to be developing a worldview in which conservation was less and less focused on the central problem, which is stopping the biodiversity crisis, stopping the sixth grade extension, stopping this sort of great spasm of contraction of Earth's diversity. And where conservation was then sort of being reoriented again toward human concerns um, and in partnership with kind of corporate interests. That was um, at the time being driven by the top science official at TNC, which who has long since moved on. And I'm happy to say, I think the trajectory there as an organization is much better now, um, much improved. And, and I, I think, you know, the, the, the overall land conservation movement, it benefits if it's large institutions like the Nature Conservancy and others are strong and principled and have the capacity to protect wild places and creatures. That's a good thing. But if we're thinking sort of in intangible in, in the near term, but if we're thinking about sort of the long-term trajectory of society, there is no way that a large institution that is gonna uh, aligns itself with corporate power and with the mega wealthy is going to have the freedom to challenge the techno-industrial growth economy and worldview in its, in its entirety. You know, that very thing, that worldview, that political and economic order, which is leading to the loss of diversity. So it's a conundrum. It's, it's, a, it's a tremendous tension and it's a dilemma. And for the larger NGOs, it becomes more and more difficult. And so you have to self-censor. And the things that um, you would say if you're a staff person or a board member sitting around the campfire with your friends, you can never say in a board meeting or a, uh, in, a in a donor visit, which is, again, I have to come back to why it was so unusual for a person like Doug Tompkins, who had ex ex succeeded so wildly as an entrepreneur, and Christine Tompkins, although you know, the Patagonia Company is, is an anomaly because of the Chouinard family who founded and owns it um, in their worldview, their nature-focused worldview. But so for them to, to in, Doug in particular, for someone who had wildly succeeded and benefited from this techno-industrial growth society, then to turn on it, to articulate why specifically it was, in his view, unreformable, well, it was remarkable. And then he, he could speak to the same level of peer that was benefiting um, from that same system. So it, I think it, overarching the concern there is, is, it is it is extremely difficult for nonprofit institutions when they get big to, to remain true to a kind of scrappy, ecocentric, nature-loving orientation. One of the, you know, the few that you can name is the Center for Biological Diversity, which has become a very large, very effective, very well-funded NGO, and yet still has re retained its core values. But it's very difficult. And, and, and here's, you know, I'll speak again just a little more to the tension, the dilemma of that. You know, right now, the Northeast Wilderness Trust um, 
has the opportunity to do all kinds of great conservation projects. You could right now, just on the cusp of starting a project to create the largest uh, private wilderness area in the state of Vermont and continue a whole bunch of big projects in the state of Maine. That Those projects can only be completed. Those forests can only be protected. The wild carbon that they store can only be sequestered if what happens? If that NGO raises several million dollars to complete the projects, where does that money come from? That money will come from the current system that you know Doug Tompkins used to critique, the whole goal of which, the entire orientation of which is to commodify the natural world and take beauty and wildness and turn it into commodities for human use and profit. This is attention. What is needed today that can help protect wildness is also coming from sources, those longer structural um, systems that privilege human beings and human and corporate profit over the interests of our cousins in the community of life, all the other wild creatures that live on the planet. Oh, thank you for speaking to these tensions. It's something that I think a lot about in my own work with conservation and hearing the land really needing protection from development and commodification and also seeing that the business side of conservation is really uh, complex and it, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not this purist <laughs> fantasy you know it's like we're in this really uh there yes there's exactly system. there's yeah. no purity no. you know there's which brings to mind the funny line you know there the one of the great land conservation leaders of american history in the last 50 years is patrick noonan pat noonan was a was the person leading the Nature Conservancy when that really became a small, moved from being a small organization to a this global behemoth. And then he went on to found the Conservation Fund and he helped protect millions and millions and millions of acres. And in part, he did that because he was a stellar fundraiser. Um, and he used to say the problem with tainted money, you know, you, the, the idea that some money is good and some money is bad, you wouldn't want tainted money. He, he said, the only problem with tainted money is there taint enough of it. And he was happy enough to, to find dollars wherever he could from whomever he could that then he then deployed into land conservation projects. Now, I'm not saying that that is the right approach, but I'm saying it, it is one approach and it's, it's, um, it's a reasonable way of looking at the problem if you're in the moment trying to kind of fend off the worst excesses of this techno-industrial growth juggernaut to get as much wildness in as much secure security as possible, as quickly as possible. You're gonna use every tool and tactic uh, that is available. And, and right now, you know, our system uh, in the US is public natural areas and private natural areas. And, and um, on the latter requires private initiative and funding. And that means, going to the people who have checkbooks that can help support that work. And, and now the, the one really kind of interesting and I think encouraging thing about this trajectory is if you go back and look at some of the stories that I profiled in, in my book, Wildlands Philanthropy, you see, you know, okay, here's a Rockefeller involved in this project there, or here's a DuPont, or here's the heiress of the 3M fortune. So there's the, there's the robber baron class, Kind of involved in conservation, but over the successive, de successive decades, um, something remarkable happened, and that was the democratization of this. It's really crowdfunding um, is what the land American land conservation movement is about. You have you have land trusts, small re local and regional land trusts now all over the country. You know more than a thousand of them. Uh, most of which uh, don't even have professional staff or very small staffs, um, working to protect locally places of, of importance to a community. And that, to me, is remarkably hopeful. In fact, if you could say, if you could think of one area in our public life where, that is still bipartisan, it is that interest in 
protecting places and protecting land that helps support the beauty, integrity, diversity of nature, and also supports human cultural and economic activity. So that that's actually one little bit of hopeful that is kind of expansion of the land trust community and the fact that, you, you know, you don't have to be a Rockefeller to, to support your local land trust. You don't have to be a DuPont. Um, people with modest means and modest incomes have and are doing this. And some of the stories in that book, in Wildlands Philanthropy, um, the success stories were from people with very, very modest resources, but who had extraordinary creativity and energy and passion for the work and did amazing things. And the result is like the Ark of Appalachia, the system of, of, of natural areas in uh, southeastern Ohio. Um, it's, it's a remarkable story founded by people who were not of means, but had extraordinary commitment to wild nature and to the particular landscape they loved. Yeah. Yeah, and when it comes to tainted money, if we assume that all money comes from extraction, of the, then it's all tainted. And to me, it's um, what tainted money are you going to take and are there strings attached? And that is another level to this question. But again, there's so much for us to talk about in this that I, I'm going to move on and hopefully we'll have another conversation where I'm taking notes on um, the, these pieces that I wish we had more time for. But I wanted to come back to In Keeping the Wild Against the Domestication of Earth, the anthology that I had referenced in the last question that you um, edited. I wanted to read a quote Conservation biologists are certain that providing enough shelter, food, water, and smartphones for three to four billion more humans by the end of the century means wildness will survive only in highly secure parks, most of them already in industrialized nations. Assuming that commerce and growth carry on as usual, soon virtually all wild rivers will be dammed, tropical forests will be replaced by commercial plantations, marine fish stocks will continue to be depleted, Oceans will be increasingly acidified, and deserts will be improved with desalinated seawater, wind farms, and solar collectors, end quote. And, you know, upon reading this passage, I thought about the many countries that possess the resources required to transition to green energy, places with abundant sources of copper and lithium and iron, and I do think this raises the question of what does conservation need to look like in the next several decades and how might it actually oppose mass extraction in the name of green energy? I think it's going to be extremely difficult, but absolutely crucial to have the, the substantive conversations about the, so this growth trajectory and, and, and how getting beyond whether you can power the world with renewables or power the world with fossil fuels, getting beyond the sort of superficial level of that conversation and get down to the more structural and systemic um, questions that undergird all this growth. But it's crucial, I think, as a, as a social change movement that we hope for the long term is building the seeds, planting the seeds of a future ecocentric a future ecological civilization that we'd be having these questions and the deep conversations now, including the deep systemic critique of people who say, in effect, well, the problem to climate change is we're just going to put wind, you know, wind turbines and solar panels and we'll all drive Priuses or we'll all drive EVs, but we'll not challenge the underlying logic of a techno techno industrial growth civilization, which is designed to do one thing, grow and produce profit, and which we know is absolutely impossible to maintain on a finite planet. You know that I often go back to that quip by the, the economist, the late economist Kenneth Boulding, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, the only people who believe that perpetual economic growth is possible on a finite, finite planet is either a madman or an economist. So that's what we have, is we have an economic order that is based on madness. And so conservation has a role to play in, again, saying always, um, 
even in, in times when this may be difficult because we, you know, we want the large donor to write the check to our project, at least some slice of the conservation movement, those leading edge, those vanguard groups need to constantly be going down to the deeper systemic analysis and saying why the current economic order has gotten us in, in large part, to the pickle we are in and the ways that um, a society has to change if we have any hope of stopping this twin crisis of, of escalating climate chaos and escalating biodiversity loss, the extinction spasm and climate change. And the answer to that, I mean, there's no silver bullet. Um, you know, everybody wants to shoot, go out hunting their favorite ism. I was, I was speaking earlier today about one ism with the absolutely brilliant, one of the world's leading wild river defenders, Juan Pablo Orego the president of Ecosystemas, the NGO in Chile. And he's working on a, a, a paper, an expose of militarism's impacts um, on the earth, and particularly the way that Chile's economy produces vast material, amounts of raw materials for the war industry. So militarism, you know, people point to militarism or capitalism, or they'll, they'll point to the problems of, of sexism and, and how we have to smash the patriarchy. Um, all of these isms deserve scrutiny. But the ultimate one that we have to drill down to, again, is this question of, of anthropocentrism, of human-centeredness, of human supremacy. And all the systems, political, economic, cultural, that privilege one species over all the other, perhaps 10 million others on the earth. And the ways we do this in the most unthinking and unexamined way, beginning with the language we use, which shapes the sort of the ideas that we think. Our cognitive frames are in large part shaped by the language we use. This is why I, I sort of get on this topic of language and my my distress over when my fellow conservationists unthinkingly continue to use the language of dominion, the language of commodification, the language of industrialism, um, even as we pretend to be trying to heal the, the problems or the symptoms of the underlying system that we oppose. Mm -hmm. Well, for my last question and i was reminded again that environmental conservation philanthropy makes up some like a, a minuscule portion of charitable donations in the united states i believe less than one percent of all philanthropic donations in the united states go to wilderness protection endangered species restoration and natural parks if you know differently please uh, correct me and, and i think listeners will be surprised to learn of this as well just this minuscule amount but I'm wondering how much of our earth is protected through conservation and what sort of projects are valued within the conservation community when funding is somewhat limited? Quick answer about how much is protected is terrestrial. I think the current number is roughly 14% of the earth's land is in some form of protected area. That's not just sort of wilderness protection, but, but all categories of conservation. Um, so 14%, and some of that, of course, would be in what you uh, sort of alluded to earlier, this idea of paper parks, places that have protection uh, in, in name only, but not in fact on the ground. Um, of course, the number of marine protected areas is a much, much lower percentage, and sort of the subcategory of that, we talk about no take, no exploitation, no resource extraction, marine protected areas whether you call them marine wilderness areas or no-take zones or marine national parks, well, that's even a tiny, tinier fraction. So to get from that level of, of protection of the earth to, let's say, just by, um, for, for sake of argument, at least 50% of the planet protected in durable institutions um, in an interconnected way, uh, sustaining the most... Uh, important and ecologically diverse habitats. Um, that's a big leap. It's a big jump, and it's going to take time, which is, again, why we're in this for the long term. Uh, the social change movement that we think of now as conservation or the conservation and environmental movements, they're very recent. 
we're not we're not talking about something that's been around uh, for for thousands of years. You know, we we first started this kind of organized thing that we think of as conservation. You know, it's only 150 years old, and and the thing that people talk to, which is slightly different and has different historical antecedents, that people refer to as the environmental movement. You know, that's much more recent still. So it is a long game. It's a marathon, not a sprint, for conservation and allied social change movements, including peace movement, women's movement, human rights movement, um, anti-racism movement, all these kinds of allied um, movements that are, again, oriented toward expanding freedom and justice. Um, we're going to be at it for a long time. But sort of, can I, if, I, if, if I can, I'll just say... When we think about why it is so crucial to do this, I want to circle back to the idea of freedom and justice, because the key social change movements, at least in American history, um, the right, uh, the movement to get women to vote or to end um, explicit forms of racism during the civil rights movement, um, even the, the more recent um, campaign successful to achieve marriage equality for um, our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters, the change movements were about expanding the sphere of ethical concern from one category of, um, to, to, to these formerly marginalized categories of people. It was always sort of, you know, okay, those people are now worthy of our, um, our ethical concern. So the, the, the circle of ethical concern gets a little larger each time. But something really remarkable happened in America when the conservation movement emerged, and particularly that subset of the conservation movement that was oriented toward national parks and wilderness areas. Here you're expanding the sphere of ethical concern to wild places and creatures, and at least implicitly saying, these are the places that exist for their own sake. We will not graze there. We will not log there. We will not mine there. And moreover, if there are grizzly bears or mountain lions there, they can have the, uh, the, you know, the, persist, the ability, the right, or the freedom to um, pursue lives of beauty and quality on their own, even if they're you know, creatures that could potentially eat me. You're, you're essentially moving from a purely human-centered framework of justice to a more ecocentric or life-centered and holistic uh, framework for justice. That is what wilderness conservation is about. It's expanding freedom and justice to all the members of the land community, including if you're in a grizzly bear country, and into members of the land community that can eat you. And I think this is, a, is the most important area of evolution for our, at least the land conservation movement to, to understand. Not that the utilitarian reasons for protecting wild places aren't important. Of course, it's wonderful to go for a hike in a park. It's wonderful for our children's brain development to have access nature, to nature. It's wonderful for natural climate solutions for wild places to store and retain natural carbon and help regulate the climate. All of those things benefit us. But ultimately, the ultimate reason for protecting wild places and creatures is because they have intrinsic value. They don't require us to value them to be valuable. That to me is the ultimate argument for conservation. And it's why I'm in this, in this movement and I, why I think ultimately, you know, we will get there toward that future ecological civilization that we all imagine. Well, thank you for um, ending on that note. And yeah, I really appreciated your thoughts and your time. And I definitely have a lot to chew on. And I'm going to take these thoughts to the woods, sit with the trees and ground myself in the complexity of conservation a bit more. Although I know <laughs> I think about it every day. And this just gave me a lot more to um, weave into the fabric of my understanding. Well, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. 
The music you heard today was by Jeffrey Silverstein and Galen Hefferman. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Melanie Younger.